Welcome to the Good Dog Pod. Every Wednesday, we discuss all things dogs, from health and veterinary care to training and behavior science. Follow us and join Good Dog's mission to build a better world for our dogs and the people who love them. Hey, everybody, it's Dr. Michael Delgado, your host for this week's episode of the Good Dog Pod. This week, we're going to talk about the Dog Aging Project, and we've got Dr. Matt Caberline here. He's a professor in the Department of Laboratory Medicine and Pathology at the University of Washington in Seattle. His research focus is on the genetic and environmental factors that contribute to longevity. He's looked at this in humans, yeast, roundworms, mice, and now in dogs. Dr. Caberline is the director of the Biological Mechanisms of Healthy Aging Training Program and co-director of the Dog Aging Project. He has received multiple awards for his research, including the Breakthroughs in Gerontology Award from the Glenn Foundation and the Ellison Medical Foundation New Scholar in Aging Award. He's a fellow of the Gerontological Society of America, and he serves on the board of the American Aging Association. The Dog Aging Project is a large-scale citizen science research program that enrolls owned dogs into a lifelong study where the owners and their dogs contribute survey data as well as biological samples such as blood, urine, and DNA. The team has published several scientific papers in recent years covering several aspects of dog health, including cognitive dysfunction, the effects of neuter surgery, and why we should use dogs as a model to help us learn more about human health and aging. Dr. Caberline, welcome to the Good Dog Pod. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. So as we get started, maybe you can tell us a little bit about why and how the Dog Aging Project was created. Sure. So, you know, I've been studying the biology of aging since I was a graduate student. So back in the late 90s, early 2000s is when I first got into this field. And as you sort of alluded to in your introduction, my early work was really in what we call model organisms, meaning the kinds of animal models that we use in the laboratory, like nematode worms, fruit flies, mice, even single-celled yeast. And so I've been working in this area for a long time. And I've also always been a dog person. I've had dogs since I was a little kid. I have one dog now, a German Shepherd named Dobby, who I absolutely love. He's a member of our family. So that's always been a part of me. But I'd never really made the connection between the science that I was working on and, you know, this other aspect of my life, which was very important until about 10 or 15 years ago through a series of conversations with Daniel Promislow, who's also a professor at the University of Washington, where he had started thinking about companion dogs or pet dogs as an sort of a unique animal in which to study the biology of aging. And so through those series of conversations, it really resonated with me that we had the potential to really do something unique and innovative and important by trying to understand the biology of aging in our pets with the ultimate goal of being able to increase health span, so the period of life that's spent in good health and lifespan in companion dogs. And so it was that process. And again, like I said, about 15 or 10 years ago now that we really set out to create this large study of aging in dogs that became the Dog Aging Project. And it's been a long process, but we're at a point now that I think everybody on the team is sort of amazed at what this has grown into and you know what we're poised, I think, to accomplish in this area. Nice. I'm sure when you were back in your grad school days, you were not thinking that this would lead to working with dogs. No, I never, ever considered that possibility, which now in hindsight, I look back and I'm like, duh, of course we should have been doing this. But no. And that's often the way it goes, right? As you grow in your career and life, sometimes you get taken in unexpected directions that you look back on and you're like, why didn't I see that earlier? 
I think one of the most impressive things about the Dog Aging Project is just that you've recruited over 30,000 pet dogs for this project. How does your team manage to like recruit and retain so many people to help with this project? I just know from my own research days, it was like, you know, trying to get 100 people sometimes was like pulling teeth. So yeah. tell us more. So first of all, it's actually over 40,000 now. Wow. Yeah. So it's a big project. And I wish I could say that it's because we were really good or we'd figured out the recruiting part. I don't think that's the case at all. I think, honestly, we've benefited from a lot of media attention over the years. The nature of the project, for obvious reasons, is very appealing from a media perspective. The idea that, first of all, we all know dogs age more rapidly than people do and trying to understand the biological mechanisms for why that's the case. But then also because so many people love their dogs and consider them part of the family, you know, the opportunity to potentially increase healthy years with people's pets is very important and it resonates with a lot of people. And so I think we've benefited from that fact that even before we had any data, we were in the New York Times or on CNN because of the concept of the project. In fact, I don't usually talk about all the media that we've gotten because I think <laughs> it's nothing that we've done. But I am actually ridiculously proud of the fact that my dog, Dobby, has actually been pictured in the New York Times, not once, but twice. So I think he's in a pretty rare class of dogs to have had their photo in the New York Times more than once. So anyways, I think that's honestly a big part of how we've been able to get the attention of so many dog owners who want to participate in this project. I also think it's because one of our core values is that we are an open science project. So yeah. we're not making money off of this. This is purely academic. We're not trying to sell people anything. In fact, the opposite. We are sharing all of our data freely with the scientific community in the hopes that other people will be able to make discoveries that we're not going to have the bandwidth to make. And again, I think that really resonates with people. I think for many reasons, unfortunately, people are kind of jaded, you know, with the way that they view stuff like this initially. And when they find out that, in fact, no, nobody's selling me anything. Nobody's trying to tell me what I should do with my dog. And we're really all about trying to make the lives of the dogs better. I think that also has contributed to why, you know, it's been relatively easy for us to get a large number of owners to participate. Yeah, it's amazing. I mean, I've obviously seen this project in the news over the past several years. So it it's been really nice to see the response. Now, this is maybe a philosophical question, but I'll see how you handle it, which is what makes a dog old? Yeah, so it's a good question. I think, again, this is going to be somewhat dependent on what your definition is. So one definition would be just chronological time, number of years. I think because of my research background, I tend to gravitate towards a biological aging definition. And what I mean by that is, you know, we all know that there are functional declines and diseases that go along with old age. That's obvious. Anybody who's over the age of 40 or 50 will notice this in their own bodies. So I tend to think in that way. And dogs are pretty interesting in this context because not all dogs age biologically at the same rate. So chronologically, all dogs age at the same rate. A five-year-old German Shepherd is going to be the same chronological age as a Chihuahua, a small dog. But body size has a big impact on biological aging rate. So a five-year-old or eight-year-old German Shepherd, eight is probably a better number to use, biologically is going to be much older than an eight-year-old Chihuahua because big dogs age faster than small dogs. So that's what I think of. And so then that context, I don't know what I would call old because it's a continuum, but I think it is an important concept to appreciate that there is this biology of aging and that 
not all dogs age biologically at the same rate, just like not all people age biologically at the same rate. So the way that I think about aging is always kind of through that lens. Excellent. We all have a desire, I think, to keep our pets as healthy as possible. Like we try to do everything to increase their lifespan and feed them the right food. And from your work, can you say how much of our dog's lifespan is kind of within our control as far as like exercise or reducing stress or feeding them the right food? And how much is due to stuff we can't control like genetics? Yeah. Again, it's a great question. And this is going to be a, by necessity, an educated guess because the real answer is we don't know. But you're right. Longevity at an individual level is going to be determined by genetics to some extent. So what you're born with lifestyle and luck, because there is this component of randomness involved in longevity. And that's true in people. And it's true in dogs. I would guess that lifestyle can probably impact healthy lifespan of a dog. And again, I want to make the explicit point that it's not only about lifespan. It's also about the quality of the year. So health span. I would say lifestyle in dogs can probably impact healthy longevity by three-ish years on average. And again, it's going to be a little bit different for different individuals. It's going to be probably a little bit different in big dogs and small dogs. But I think that's a pretty reasonable expectation that for a dog that maybe doesn't have a healthy lifestyle, that's obese and doesn't get any exercise, that you could probably get two or three more years simply by getting that foundation in place. And I think in people, it's probably on the order of 15 years from a very unhealthy lifestyle to a healthy lifestyle. We talk a bit among my colleagues about the lost decade that many people experience because of poor lifestyle choices. I think from a proportional perspective, it's probably pretty comparable in dogs. I have a question that just occurred to me that's pretty important, which is, can you explain why large dogs don't live as long? Do we understand what's going on there? We have some, I think, pretty solid hypotheses. So I think the best hypothesis is that this is largely driven by a hormonal signaling pathway called the insulin-like growth factor mm. pathway. So IGF-1 signaling is the largest genetic determinant of body size in dogs. So dogs that have higher IGF-1 signaling genetically are larger. We know in laboratory animals, and this is true in worms, it's true in fruit flies, it's true in mice, that lower IGF-1 signaling, particularly during development, meaning if you're born with a genetic predisposition to low IGF-1, lower IGF-1 signaling is associated with significantly longer lifespans, 50 to 80% longer lifespans. Wow. And that's actually pretty close to the percentage we difference we see between something like a Chihuahua and a Great Dane. On average, a Chihuahua will live about twice as long as a Great Dane. So that's the best guess. There's probably other things involved as well. So just wear and tear, joint problems obviously are much more pronounced in big dogs. Yeah. Cancer incidence in general is a little bit higher in big dogs, but some of that can be traced also back to IGF-1. So that's the best guess right now is it's most of that difference is probably through IGF-1 signaling. Okay. Yeah. It just occurred to me that we don't have like a lot of good examples of other species with such a range of sizes within the species. You're absolutely right. I don't want to get too deep in the biology, but this is kind of fascinating because when you look across species, so if you go from worms to flies to mice to birds to dogs to people to elephants, in general, larger animals live longer. So the bigger the body size, the longer the lifespan when you look across sure. animals. But when you look within species, it gets flipped and the smaller individuals within a given species tend to live longer. It's just like you said, dogs have such a variation in body size that we can see that difference. It's much more pronounced. That trend, though, where smaller individuals tend to age more slowly and live longer, 
almost certainly true in mice, very likely true in people. In humans, it's confounded, though, by the fact that there are social components to being taller or being shorter that mix things up a little bit. But that seems to be also the case in people. So, yeah, it's this interesting biological phenomenon that honestly, we're still trying to understand what the mechanisms are there. Cool, cool. Okay, in one study you did, 40% of participating dog owners were giving their dogs joint supplements. What did you learn from that study and what unanswered questions are there related to giving dogs joint supplements? This comes up a lot, like I think a lot of our community do give dogs joint supplements. It's kind of, I think, a lot of recommendations, especially with big dogs, to prevent problems. Yeah, so I mean, I think obviously the largest unanswered question from my perspective is do these things work? Or do they work in most dogs? So the study I think you're referring to is a study that was led by Jessica Hoffman, who's a talented early career scientist. And the goal of that study was to look at the factors that are associated with joint supplement use in our cohort. So in this case, this was the year one cohort. So I think there were about 27,000 dogs in that data set. I want to make the point, and this will be true for all the stuff that we talk about from the Dog Aging Project today, These are all so far based on survey answers that owners are giving. So we get medical records. We also get some biological samples now from many of the dogs in the what we call the Dog Aging Project pack. That's the sort of overall 41,000 dogs. But the first year data set was all based on survey information. That's important to understand because for obvious reasons, there are some questions about how accurate owner-reported surveys are. We're pretty confident that our data set is maybe surprisingly accurate. But also, it's all association, right? So what we're saying in this particular case is how many dogs are taking joint supplements and among those that are or aren't, what other maybe disease diagnoses are associated with that? So causality, we just have to be very careful not to assume causality in in any of this stuff. So one thing that surprised me here was that I think it was 40% or so of the dogs that are in the pack had taken some sort of joint supplement. That's a pretty high percentage. And I don't know if that's a precise mapping to the United States dog population is probably pretty close. So a lot of dogs are taking some sort of joint supplement with, again, in my view, real questions about whether these things are actually benefiting the dogs. So the associations I think that were strongest was if a dog had been previously diagnosed with osteoarthritis, more likely to take a joint supplement. That makes sense. Age, strongly associated. That also makes sense. Body size, strongly associated. So larger or obese dogs, more likely to take joint supplements. And then there were some owner socioeconomic status factors that seemed to influence whether a dog was likely to be given a joint supplement or not. So there was nothing here that strongly surprised me, I guess I would say, but it makes a lot of sense that the factors that we would anticipate being associated with joint supplement use are in fact associated. Again, though, the frustrating thing is it doesn't actually in my view, at least, start to shed any clarity on how effective these things are for individual dogs or across the board. And unfortunately, we can't answer that question. You really need clinical trials to answer those kinds of questions. Hopefully in the future, because, yeah, I mean, of course, since they're available over the counter, it also means there's not as much like control or regulation of the quality, too. So That's right. And they're available in many different forms. And, you know, there are some dog foods that are supplemented with things that are, you know, joint care formulas. There are prescription medications you can get. And probably the efficacy of those different kinds of joint supplements is going to differ. So, yeah, there's a lot of uncertainty, I would say, out there right now. You are listening to The Good Dog Pod. We are talking to Dr. Matt Haberlein about the Dog Aging Project, and we'll be right back. 
Your Litter A to Z is the leading science-based course for dog breeders. It includes expertly designed 18 modules, checklists, and reports that cover before breeding, getting your bitch pregnant, whelping your litter, and raising your pups. This course usually costs $479, but you can access it for free when you join Good Dog. Click the link in the show notes to learn more. We are back. You're listening to the Good Dog Pod, and we are talking to Dr. Matt Caberline about the Dog Aging Project. Dr. Caberline, can you describe what cognitive dysfunction is in dogs? Is it similar to Alzheimer's in humans? And maybe you could just touch on what happens biologically in the brain, as well as what owners might see behaviorally in their dogs if they have this. Sure. So there is a clinically defined disorder called canine cognitive dysfunction, which is you know, I think the question of to what extent does it look like Alzheimer's disease at a cellular molecular level is a little bit open. We have a large project actually studying this right now, but definitely it mirrors human dementias as an overall class, right? So Alzheimer's disease is a specific type of human dementia, but there are many other dementias. Mm-hmm. So I feel pretty comfortable saying that it's very, very likely that the biological mechanisms underlying canine cognitive dysfunction mirror dementias as a class in people. Is it closer to Alzheimer's disease than, you know, other types of dementia? Unknown at this time. So it's typically diagnosed one of two ways in dogs. It can be diagnosed by a veterinarian or, and I think this is probably more common, it can be diagnosed by a validated survey instrument. And so there are actually two of these things and we use one of them in the Dog Aging Project. So our survey we call the Canine Social and Learned Behavior Survey And it's a survey that it takes like 10 minutes maybe for owners to answer. So all the owners in the Dog Aging Project are asked to complete this survey. And it's based on a scoring metric where if the score is above 50, that is clinically diagnostic for dementia, canine cognitive dysfunction in dogs. If it's below 50, it's not. So it's what I call a binary tool. It's a yes or no answer. We have been exploring whether or not this tool can be used to measure declines in cognitive function prior to onset of dementia, we're pretty confident it can. We'll be publishing that at some point in the near future. So we actually think this can be used as a continuous tool to see age-related declines in cognitive function prior to a diagnosis of dementia. Now, some of the practical things that owners will notice when their dog is either in the early stages of cognitive decline or proceeding into dementia are mostly behavioral things. So, you know, the dog might show a change in interaction with the family. Mm -hmm. So dog will spend a lot more time by itself. Sometimes they'll get stuck in the house, so staring at the wall or staring at the corner. Or one of the most common things I think people report is the dog gets stuck in furniture under a desk or under a chair. I mean, it's very sad, obviously. But those are the kind of signs that people can watch for. Unfortunately, right now, there's, you know, much like human dementia, there's not a lot that can be done from a therapeutic perspective once your dog is diagnosed with dementia. So again, that's something that we're trying to study and understand and try to identify some of the factors that are potentially protective or at least associated with a lower risk of dementia. We've identified a few, so I think that's oh, pretty cool. interesting as well. Yeah, since they can't do Sudoku, we need to... Um, right. <laughs> right. <laughs> okay, well, let's talk about the effects of activity on aging in dogs. I think this was actually what put you on my radar recently was our recent study where you asked dog owners to describe their dog's levels of physical activity and then looked at some other factors such as the dog's age and weight and the owner's age. So what was the takeaway from this study? Right. We've actually looked at activity in a few contexts. So I think the study you're referring to was published in the Journal of Gerontology earlier this year, yep. where we did what you said was we looked at activity 
levels based on our survey. So again, I want to mention again, this is all owner reported. And then we ask what things are associated with different levels of activity. We've also done the reverse, like with dementia and asked what things are associated with dementia and activity came out as one of the things most strongly inversely associated with dementia. So it's kind of interesting. And again, maybe not surprising, you know, exercise is one of the things that is most likely to have an impact on longevity and age-related diseases in people. That seems to be the case in dogs as well, which is interesting and also reassuring, I would say. So in the study, I think that you are referring to, one thing that was not surprising but clear was that old dogs tend to be less active than young dogs do. It's sort of interesting, maybe not shocking, that rural dogs are more active than Mm -hmm. suburban or urban dogs. I think the surprising finding here was that the activity level of the dog seemed to be inversely associated with the age of the owner. And then what I mean by that is that older owners reported that their dogs were more active, whereas younger owners reported that their dogs were less active. Again, this is a place where I think we do have to be careful about the fact that this is owner reported. I don't know the explanation for this. It's not what I would have expected. I would have expected younger owners would have more active dogs. You could imagine that older owners if they are less active than younger owners would perceive their dog's activity as higher. So that's one possibility. Retirement. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> they don't have jobs anymore. Right? Well, retired. it could also be that older owners have more time to take their dogs for yeah. walks. Yeah, exactly. absolutely. Yeah. So that's a possibility. And I think there are other potential lifestyle factors. Maybe younger owners are more likely to be in urban settings and have smaller dogs that are in the house all the time. So this is where we get into the challenge of these sorts of correlative studies and really teasing apart mechanistic interactions. But that was one thing that surprised me quite a bit. The other thing that I thought was so striking was in a different study where we looked at factors influencing diagnosis of CCD, canine cognitive dysfunction. So age was the strongest risk factor for diagnosis of CCD, not shocking. Second strongest was activity level. So I think it was almost a sevenfold effect where dogs at the highest activity level were sevenfold less likely to be diagnosed, have it, wow. having had a prior diagnosis of dementia than dogs that are sedentary. So okay. pretty striking. And again, you know, I think the take home is there's very little downside to getting out and walking with your dog for you or for the dog. Very nice. And I guess based on that, I'm going to guess one of the answers to my next question, which is really about this idea. I think people assume that when their pets get old, they're going to be sick. You know, I hear it said all the time, aging is not a disease. Right. It's a risk factor for disease. And so I think sometimes people think like, oh, nothing can be done to prevent the effects of aging. So do you have any thoughts about like either preventative or treatments to reduce risks of age associated diseases, improve our dog's lifespan, quality of life that maybe people just dismiss as like, oh, he's just old? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And so a couple of things to say before I get into some specific ideas on things owners can do. One is, so you're right, we can't stop aging. That's absolutely true, but we can modify it. And biological aging is actually quite modifiable. And I want to come back and reemphasize something I said before. In people, it's probably 15 years of extra quality life that a lot of people can get if they just implement modifiable lifestyle habits. 10 years, certainly. And it's probably comparable percentage in dogs. So we're talking a couple of years, two, three, maybe even four extra years of really good quality life by just adopting a healthy lifestyle for your dog. So while we can't make dogs live as long as people, it's a pretty significant quantity of life impact that can be had. And I think people should really try to balance that instead of throwing up their hands and saying there's nothing we can do. 
And in dogs, in some ways, it's easier to do that because the dog's lifestyle is really determined in large part by the owner and what the owner chooses. So the obvious things are activity. We've already talked a few times about how important activity seems to be for a variety of health outcomes, including dementia, but in all parts of the body. Diet is the other big one, just like in people. Again, diet and activity are the two big ones probably in people. So one thing I'll say is we don't have any clear data yet on the composition of the diet. We're looking at that now. So we do capture some of that information from the surveys about like kibble versus raw food versus cooked home diets. We don't have any information on that yet. But eating too much is clearly a negative risk factor for biological aging and age-related diseases. So obesity, I think the estimates are about two years in dogs. That's how much time you're giving up if your dog is obese. So that's pretty important. So making sure your dog's not obese and is active are number one and two, I would say. One thing a lot of people don't think about is dental care. Turns out the mouth is really important for health and the rest of the body. Again, true in people, also true in dogs. I know a lot of people are concerned. In fact, I am about taking my dog in, putting it under anesthesia for dental care. But if your dog's going to be in for something else and has to go under anesthesia, it makes sense to get the dental care then. And it's pretty easy to brush your dog's teeth. So really, I think that's something easy that people can do. The other things are making sure you see your vet regularly, just like your physician, get the vaccines that you're supposed to get. Those things all add up. And I think if people really focused on doing those, it's not asking a lot to expect you're going to get a couple extra years of quality life with your dog. I think if it was posed that way, like being obese cuts two years off your dog's lifespan, people would probably be like, oh, maybe I should do something. And we've done a lot on the Good Dog Pod on dental care. So we've had a lot on like fear-free dental care and how to brush your dog's teeth. So definitely something that we support, but it's really great to kind of reemphasize the relationship between your overall health. It's not just about what's going on in your mouth. It's like the whole body. So that's fantastic. Yeah. And I mean, in fact, in people, the people who have periodontal disease are at higher risk for a bunch of other age-related diseases, including dementia, heart disease, diabetes. So there's a connection there probably mediated by the immune system. So if you have an infection in your mouth, you're going to have chronic inflammation in the rest of your body. And in part, this is a cultural thing. We've always treated healthcare of the mouth as different from healthcare in the rest of the body. So I think psychologically, people don't make that connection. And it's unfortunate because it is absolutely connected. Yeah, it's like even separate on your insurance, right? It's like I have dental insurance and then separate medical. It's like, Yeah. yeah, not different. Okay, and we've talked a little bit about size issues related to aging. Are there any other breed-specific effects of aging that you found in dogs? Yeah, so body size is the biggest one. And clearly that is, in my view at least, reflecting a difference in the biological rate of aging when you go from small dogs to big dogs. Pretty much every functional decline and organ system aging is accelerated in big Mm -hmm. dogs. Actually, I'm going to add one because this is something that perplexes me. The one place that doesn't seem to be true is in the brain. So if you look at almost any other tissue or organ, big dogs are aging faster than small dogs. If you look at cognitive decline, there's no difference. So the brain doesn't seem to be affected the same way as the other tissues and organs by body size, which is fascinating from a biological perspective. I'm a biologist, so I'm really turned on by trying to figure out what's going on there. But that's the one thing I can point to and say that clearly is affecting the biological rate of aging. When you look at breeds, that signal is not as strong. And so I don't feel confident saying that there's any evidence that specific breeds are aging throughout the entire body at a different rate once you control for body size. It's absolutely the case that certain breeds are more susceptible to specific 
age-related diseases. And there are some common ones like Doberman pinchers are at a much higher risk for dilated cardiomyopathy. Golden retrievers are at much higher risk for certain types of cancer. Those are probably genetic. And those are traits that have been bred into those specific breeds that are leading to that disease risk. The one area where I think it's an open question if it's really the biology of aging or some collection of age-related diseases that's kind of interesting are intact versus sterilized Mm -hmm. dogs. So in our cohort, about 90% of the dogs are sterile. That, I think, maps pretty closely to the population in the United States. And there does seem to be, again, once you control for body size, about a one-year difference in lifespan for sterilized versus intact with sterilized dogs living longer. But the disease frequency shifts. So it's not like all diseases are lower in sterilized dogs. They're actually at higher risk for some diseases, lower risk for others. The other one that makes a big difference, relatively large, I guess, is purebred versus mixed breed. Also about a year, once you control for body size, mixed breed dogs live about a year longer than purebred dogs. Is that because they're aging more slowly? Probably not would be my guess. Probably has to do with disease risks associated with inbreeding in the purebred dogs. So yeah, I think genetics obviously plays a big role, but I don't feel confident saying that it really, at least at the breed level, has a strong influence on rate of aging or lifespan. Okay. Now, are you still seeking new participants for the Dog Aging Project? And if so, how can people sign up? Yeah, absolutely. So we are still enrolling dogs. So it's kind of unfortunate in a sense that the name was the Dog Aging Project. I like the name, but it I think gave people the impression that we're not interested in young dogs, which is wrong. So we didn't really talk about the structure of the project, but the biggest part of the project is what we call a longitudinal study of aging, meaning we want to follow these dogs over many years so that we can really identify lifestyle factors, environmental factors, and genetic factors that influence risk of disease in the future. So we really need young dogs at the start in order to follow them throughout most of their lives. So we're recruiting all dogs, all breeds, big dogs, small dogs, sterile dogs, intact dogs, old dogs, but particularly young dogs. Nice. We need more young dogs in our cohort. Mm -hmm. We also need more rural dogs in our cohort. Not surprisingly, maybe a larger percentage than I think the general population in our cohort are urban and suburban dogs. So I absolutely would encourage people to go to the website, dogagingproject.org. There's a little button that says nominate your dog, and that's how you start the process. And if you have a dog and you love your dog and you're interested in science and want to participate in a community science, open science project, please go to the website and nominate your dog. Awesome. We'll drop the link in the show notes as well. Now, before I wrap up, I did want to ask you a little bit more about Dobby. Aside from the fact that your dog has had their photo in the New York Times more than probably most humans, (laughs) unless they're a politician or famous person. Yeah, tell us about your dog. So Dobby is a German Shepherd, long-haired German Shepherd, which you don't see so often. But my personal opinion is, I mean, German Shepherds are beautiful, but long-haired German Shepherds are even more beautiful than standard German Shepherds, I would say. We actually got him about 12 years ago now as a puppy. And the reason we named him Dobby is because he had large German Shepherd ears on this tiny little puppy. And my kids were into the Harry Potter series back then. And so that's where the name comes from. You know, I don't really know how to describe this other than as somebody who's had dogs my entire life, sometimes more than one dog. I've loved all the dogs, but some dogs are just special, I guess is the way I would say it. I feel fortunate to have had two. One was a Kazon that my wife and I adopted when we were undergraduates. Her name was Duchess, and she was just our little girl. We loved her desperately, and it was terrible when we lost her. And the other is Dobby. So I don't know what makes some dogs that way. But I think probably a lot of dog owners can understand what I'm saying. And he's 
just a really special dog, definitely a part of our family. And again, he's getting old. So he's 12 now and you see him slowing down and Mm -hmm. it's kind of like make the most of the time that we have left. Oh, he just came in the room with me. Oh, nice. Is he part of the dog aging project? He is. Yeah. So he's part of the pack, which is the largest group. As the leadership of the Dog Aging Project, we made a decision that, so everybody on the Dog Aging Project leadership is a dog person, as you might imagine, (laughs) that none of our dogs would be part of what we call the sampled cohorts where we're doing blood tests on them or they're getting free veterinary care because it, it felt like a conflict of interest. But he is in the pack. And one of the things that we learned about Dobby, which was kind of interesting, was we thought he was a pure long-haired German Shepherd. It turns out, upon sequencing his genome, that there is some small percentage of something else that snuck into the pure bloodline (laughs) at some point in the past generations. But that doesn't change how much we love him. So we won't tell Dobby. That's right. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you so much for sharing your science with us today. It was really great to chat with you. And I'm sure some of our listeners are going to nominate their dogs right now. Everybody go sign up. Thank you. All right. Thanks, everyone, for listening. We'll be back next week. (laughs) 